Let's continue to seek the Lord's aid. Father, as we come to the Word this morning, we pray that You would open it to our hearts' understanding by the ministry of the Spirit, that You would teach, convince, strengthen, convict, change. Lord, we need You. We come to this opportunity and we know that we are in need. We pray then that You would minister Your grace to us through the revealed Word of the living God. For those who know not Christ, we pray that You would draw them to the light of this truth. And while we live out our life in this world that is fallen and in rebellion against You, we realize that there is a a correction, that there is a challenge that is before us to think Your truth. I pray that it would capture our hearts and that You'd move within this assembly today as we continue to respond to the truth that You've revealed. Through Christ we pray. Amen. To fear God is to fear sin. To love God is to despise sin. To delight in God, to find soul satisfaction in Christ, is to find sin increasingly empty and unsatisfying. Turn your face toward God, and you always turn your back to the idolatries of this fallen world. Now, brothers and sisters, as much as we know this in our own hearts, Satan is just as aware of it. Our adversary and his minions do not passively leave us alone to pursue fidelity to Christ as we wish. A godless world does not stand back and give us space and encourage us to pursue our heart's delight in Christ. The spiritual battle and maturation of believers is always a pitched battle. It is a battle against a world system that operates in rebellion against God and is always enticing us to join the rebellion. They will not, cannot, as kingdom builders, ever be at peace until all are against Christ. And it's a battle against the flesh, our earthy susceptibility to the passing pleasures of sin. Every day, all day, until we meet Christ, a battle rages in our souls, whether to worship false gods or to worship the one true and living God in the face of Jesus Christ. It means then that we need to learn to identify temptations to idolatrous infidelity and to resist them. That's the ABCs of the Christian life. That's very basic and obvious to us. But it means that we need to learn to identify godless attitudes and to see them as sin, not excuse them. To identify selfish desires and sensual allures that pull us away from our devotion to Christ. The Corinthian church members were generally rather satisfied with themselves, it seems. But Paul is deeply concerned for their spiritual life and for their spiritual vitality. And so he speaks to them in pretty sharp, bold terms. As we continue to unravel the historical context that forms the basis of chapters 8 through 10, Paul is alarmed with the Corinthians' relationship with the pagan temples in Corinth. 
how they related to those pagan temples was a deep concern, and he's bringing this together in these chapters. Some of the Corinthians were eating at these temples and thus identifying with false gods, as well as communing ultimately with demonic ritual. They didn't think of it that way, but this is Paul's concern. Who is your master? Who are you serving? Christ or the idols of this world? Now some believers were even visiting cult prostitutes at those temples. There's a lot to clean up here in the Corinthian church. Remember this in chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In an earlier interaction, Paul insisted that they cease and desist. But this was met by some resistance. If not the visitation of prostitutes at these temples... The Corinthians at least pushed back and said, well, we can at least go to a restaurant. We can at least eat in these temples, can we not? And we know that we can do this because idols are nothing. They're not a reality. This is their thinking and their pushback to the Apostle Paul. And it becomes a standing issue between them. It's not solved by 1 Corinthians, but we read in 2 Corinthians, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So this is deeply entrenched in the church, and Paul goes at it very hard in passages such as we look at here today. So defending his apostolic authority to call them to a path of obedience in chapter 9, he now calls them to resist this temptation. He begins to narrow in on his central exhortation in chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. That's where he's heading ultimately. It takes a long time to get there to bring them along to hear his plea for purity. But here in verses 1-14, to he offers us counsel on overcoming the seductive powers of idolatry. And for us, though in a very different setting and situation, there is direct application in the culture in which we live. The trials that we face, the temptations that we face in our sensual, self-centered culture. And so I think there's much crossover here for us. But as he counsels them, how would you counsel them? What would you say? He begins with this idea. Take to heart the outcome of Israel's disobedience. We've been down this road before in salvation history, so wake up, think about what has happened in the life of Israel, and take this to heart. Verse 1 of chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Whoa, Paul, you you just got lost there. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, it, 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 have you lost your way? He, he's clearly now reflecting 
on Israel's exodus from Egyptian slavery and her wilderness wanderings. But isn't he addressing meat offered to idols and dining in pagan temples? Think of it. First century metropolitan Corinth is a universe removed from Israel's wanderings in the desert. 1,500 years earlier, these people in the desert and Corinthians in the city of the great city of Corinth, Paul's not lost his way. How do we know the first word? For. There's a direct connection to what he has been saying in chapters 8 and 9 now. And that is going to revolve around the idea, particularly, of identification and Israel's history from which the Corinthians need to learn, from which Eden Baptist Church needs to learn. So the four connects it very logically in his mind. He's not lost his way, but he goes over this Old Testament history. In chapter 9 and verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. There is a possibility that those who appear to be running the Christian life are going to pull off and will not finish that race. Let that not be you. For, and now he goes in in a defense of that in these verses, drawing again from the Old Testament context. Israel pulled off and did not finish the race, and face the judgment of God. So the Corinthians are in danger of this. They do not fear sin as they must. So Paul, using the Scriptures, is helping them to see themselves. He seeks to awaken them by citing the example of the Israelites in the wilderness and speaks of them as our fathers, which is an interesting phrase in an address to a largely Gentile church. They are our fathers by faith. Even though Gentiles, we are linked by faith in the true God to all of God's people through the ages. So as Gentile Christians, they could legitimately look to Israel as their spiritual heritage. And this is so vital for us in our individualistic age that is so detached from historical roots. To recognize that your roots, believer in Jesus Christ, go all the way back to Adam. They go all the way back to Seth. And forward from there, this string of God's faithful people, we connect to it, we learn from it, we live in it, we abide it. It is our heritage. So look back to this and know that Israel crossed the Red Sea and was baptized, so to speak, into Moses. That is, there's an identification with Moses when Israel crosses that sea. Over top is the cloud. Remember the Shekinah glory that shrouded the glorious presence of the Lord as He led Israel, protecting her, whether from enemies or the sun or misdirection. The cloud is always there leading and guiding them. Well, that cloud at this point is overhead. Well, what's on the left is a wall of water. And what's on the right is a wall of water. And behind on the two ends is earth as they go down into the sea. And he, he pictures this then as a sense of baptism. They are entirely immersed in the elements, 
certainly would point to the imagery of immersion here. As all places are covered and they are buried in a sense with Moses fully enveloped in the sea and the cloud. But think of it. You're Israel. You step onto the dry floor of the Red Sea and you are all in with Moses. Right? You have followed him into the realm of death. You are looking to Moses as your mediatorial Savior, buried with Moses in the Red Sea, raised with Moses to new life as you emerge on the other side. And as Israel continued her journey into the desert, south and east of the Promised Land, God continued to rescue and to provide. He provided water out of a rock. And He rained down manna for them to eat. He provided food and drink. Now, think of the connections here. Very clear with a Christian church 1,500 years removed that He's pointing them to the initiatory rite of the church in baptism and the continuing rite of the church in the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking. Israel experienced all these victories. They experienced this deliverance from God. They were in Moses and in the life that God had given them of freedom in Him and provision in Him. But as he speaks of that, we know that that's not where the story ends. It does connect to Christ and to our day. And so you see that at the end of verse 4. He says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Rock is a word used frequently to describe Yahweh's relationship with Israel. Just Noting one example in Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. A parallel statement there. So the rock is God. Verse 15, Israel forsook God who made Israel and scoffed at the rock of Israel's salvation. If you are unmindful of the rock that bore you, And you forget the God who gave you birth. You see the the connection, the use of this word rock to refer to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Well, Paul very naturally, purposefully, links the rock to Christ. Christ is that rock. What the Old Testament ascribes to God, the New Testament can ascribe to Christ. What God does... Jesus does. This reveals Christ's pre-existence as well. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, and that's the beginning of the account. Christ is with Israel in the wilderness before His birth in Bethlehem. He is God very God, and He's man very man. There's an indication here of His pre-existence. But all of that aside... Though Israel was not fully capable of comprehending the presence of Christ in the desert, not equipped yet for that understanding, Christ is indeed the prime actor and the fulfillment of all to which the Old Testament pointed. I want us to catch something here as we, before we move into verse 5. Notice the repetition of the word all. You see it there in verse 1. All 
were under the cloud. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses. Verse 3, all ate. Verse 4, all drank. We have five uses of the word all. That is, there was a high privilege and blessing from God, but that high privilege was no guarantee against sin or against idolatry specifically, was it? 4 verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All, 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 all but most. Recipients of food and drink from God, recipients of deliverance from Egypt and slavery, but most. The Greek word used here speaks of their bodies strewn or scattered about on the floor of the desert. That's the outcome for these people so thoroughly blessed by God. Take this account to heart. God loved Israel. God chose Israel. God protected Israel in unique ways, provided for Israel in unique ways. And where does it end for most? Their bodies strewn on the desert floor in judgment because they turned from the living God to trust in idols. And so naturally then, the second point is determined to avoid Israel's spiritual infidelity. That's why this is here. This is why how we are instructed then to avoid it. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The Old Testament accounts of Israel's infidelity to Yahweh are preserved to caution us. The Holy Spirit's breathed out word to the church includes Israel's idolatrous history so that we would avoid the judgment that they suffered. Just a quick sideline on this idea. We must learn to see Christ in all of the Old Testament. Verse 4. The Old Testament points to and it finds its terminus in Jesus. And we rejoice in that and need to continue to read the Scriptures the way that Paul does here as he uses the Old Testament. In that process, I think there is a place where we can head in a little bit of a wrong direction, and that is that many warn us then never to draw moralizing lessons from the Old Testament. And there's a good point there. For instance, the point of the infant Moses' sister fetching his mother to nurse him for Pharaoh's daughter is not, the conclusion is not that we should be industrious and helpful. Right? That's, that's not what we're to draw from that Old Testament text, just moralizing from that illustration. Or the point of David's defeat of Goliath. It's not, be a courageous person. Look what you can do. This is a point well taken, and we want to emphasize it. But we must also not swing past what Scripture teaches. The story of the wandering Israelites is indeed intended to serve as a negative example. Do not pattern your life after this. We're we're to witness what they did and what they loved and to respond by acting and loving differently 
That is the intention of the Old Testament text. And yes, Christ is at the center of that agenda, start to finish. So we want to go both ways in a sense and rightly balance this. Not falling into that moralizing error in our interpretation, but not on the other hand saying that this has nothing to do with us. It does. It's there for our edification and sanctification. Quick sideline. But back to the point. Some experiences in Israel's history under the Old Covenant prefigured spiritual realities under the New Covenant and served to challenge the Corinthians and challenge us equally to this day. So starting with verse 7, Paul is now going to draw out four sins Four examples from Israel's experience that he wants the Corinthians to think about. And I think there's probably little uh, option other than the fact that he's picking these sins purposefully because they need to consider these particularly, but they are helpful to each of us. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Exodus 32 That's what he's referring to. Moses is on Mount Sinai. Israel throws what we would call a wild party. Dancing, revelry, eating, drinking, sexual promiscuity is the context of the words that are used. The sin was idolatry. Worshipping the gods of sensual pleasure that destroy the soul. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The reference, Numbers 25. Israel is seduced by the young women of Moab. They eat meat sacrificed to false gods. They enter into idolatrous worship with them, including participation in temple prostitution. The sin, sexual immorality, and God judges. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The reference, Numbers 21. Israel complains about God's deliverance and provision of manna yearning to return to Egypt. God judges with poisonous serpents. The sin is putting God to the test. Despising God and testing the limits of His grace. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The reference, Numbers chapter 14, Israel grumbles against God, grumbling against the sovereign God who who ordains all that comes to pass, who can be trusted to provide for His people. So he lays out these four Old Testament examples. Draw from this. Learn from this. It's here to grant us wisdom as we avoid such sin. So verse 11, he says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are not going to take a deep dive into the dark forest of the word example. The Greek word tupas or type. Now clearly, The Corinthians were not a formal antitype of the Israelites because why? Paul's saying don't do what they did. So it can't be a formal typology where you have type, the pattern in the early time that's fulfilled by the antitype in a later time. It's clearly not that. 
Suffice it to say here, though, that the Corinthians and we are to read the Old Testament Scriptures to gain insight and inspiration to live with fidelity to Christ. These Holy Scriptures have come down to us on whom the end of the ages has come. The dawn of the Messianic age has risen and will find consummation soon. And we are connected to that line of history. So let us learn from it. Let us grow from it. Let us take these lessons and avoid their sin. To avoid the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the testing of God's patience, the grumbling against Him, and all others. This indeed is the reason why God preserved these accounts for our sanctification today. So can I say to us as a church, Eden Baptist Church, read the Old Testament. You don't have to read it all equally. If you want to skip through the skin diseases, go ahead. I think God will understand. There's more there than probably meets the eye, but it's really not particularly helpful to it. If you just can't handle the genealogies, skip through the genealogies. But may we never be so foolish to think that the history of the Old Testament is for little children in Sunday school. You will never get to the depths of the meaning of any single historical account in the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. It was the Bible of the early church. And learning to read it rightly, learning to understand how it points us to Christ, it is pointing there all the time. Pointing there in the passage on skin diseases. Who heals those diseases? Every way, every corner, every place, it is pointing to our Messiah. Read it. It's there for us to be sanctified. God tells us that right here in this text. Well, at verse 12, Paul draws a conclusion. And he exhorts us to live faithfully with humble hope in Christ's deliverance. I'm throwing verse 14 in there as a conclusion to what we're looking at here today, but it's really also looking at what is coming. But just with that understood, I think we can say this over these three verses. Live faithfully with humble hope in Christ's deliverance. Verse 12, humility. Do not rely on yourself in this battle. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember the five alls in verses 1-4 to and the most in verse 5? Do not be foolish like Israel and rely on yourself and think you've got this figured out. Drop your arrogance, Paul says. Do not take your membership in the church for granted. Do not think that because you were baptized into Christ and because you eat and drink at the Lord's table that all is well and fine on that level. It's a call to humble, sober self-examination. And do you not find, brothers and sisters, we run across these kinds of texts in Scripture fairly regularly, don't we? Test whether or not you're in the faith. Be humble. Take heed 
that you truly are standing in Christ. This should not trouble us. This should not cause us to doubt our salvation as we trust in the Lord. But it certainly does call us to continue to consider and to not take for granted our salvation. It is never a ticket in the back pocket. It is always a transformational process that Christ is working out in our life as we continue to persevere. He has saved us for time and eternity once and for all. And He is also saving us every day as we put our trust and our confidence in Christ crucified and risen. So don't take pride in yourself. Don't take pride in your religiosity, in your religious rituals. Don't take pride and, take, and say that it's all finalized because I take the Lord's Supper and I was baptized. Learning from Israel's experience, that is not what we put our hope in, but in Christ alone. And secondly, then, so first, verse 12, humility. Don't rely on yourself. Secondly, Hope, trust in Christ's power over sin. Verse 13. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It would be really ideal to spend an entire sermon right here. But let's walk through it just briefly. First of all, what does temptation mean? That word can be used two ways. Temptation, that is seduction to sin. In other contexts, it can mean a test or trial that someone is facing with difficulty. There really is not a lot of difference between those two when you come down to it because every trial, every difficulty can very quickly turn into a seduction to sin. Being diagnosed with a terminal illness. Suffering a financial setback. Breaking up with a friend. Losing a mate. In each of these trials, it's very easy for us to see how we can be tempted to anger, to despair, to bitterness, to self-pity, to grumbling against God. So we don't need to draw a big distinction between trial and temptation. But here, the emphasis probably falls on temptation to sin because that's the context. Principle one, Christian, as you fight sin, as you seek to turn away from idolatry and draw closer and closer to Christ, here's first principle. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. When you face temptations to sin, never conclude that your experience is unique. That is a dangerous line. Take a a woman, she's really excited about giving birth, can't wait, but there's complications, and the baby has to be taken by cesarean section. And you find her in deep depression. This is not what she wanted. And she says, nobody on earth has ever faced this trial and this heartache. And you're a guy and you say, yeah, you're right. As far as I'm concerned, I cannot help you. I don't know what trial this is, how hard this is. But what's the truth for her? 
There's a lot of women that have gone through this. As a man, I can't experientially help you at all. I can love you and pray for you, but here are some women of faith that have been through this same trial. Now, would we not say of this woman that she's walking sinfully and unwisely if she refuses to hear this? I'm the only one that's ever suffered this. No. It's not a psychological play here. It's to say there's a people of God. There's a people of God who have gone together through life, through the centuries, trusting the Lord through every trial you will ever experience. You never stand on your own. Principle number two, God is faithful. God is always faithful to His people. In the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, always know that God is there. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always trustworthy. That's not where the problem lies if you're struggling. He is faithful. How does that faithfulness show itself? Principle number three, and He will not let you, to be, temp- let you be tempted beyond your ability. That is, God promises never to allow you to encounter temptations to sin that are beyond your capacity to overcome with His strength. This God will not do. Put you into a temptation you cannot overcome with His power. What he will do, principle number four, is this. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Fourth principle, God promises that every temptation will end and that he will supply you with the grace to endure that temptation. Brothers and sisters, hear it again. Only God is eternal. Only God is eternal, not your trials, not your temptations. They all have a shelf life. You may have to endure until you see Christ, but there is an escape always. Now on that, we have to ask, how does that work together? There's an escape, and we endure. How do we put those two together? The escape, when, I think when we in English hear escape, we think escape hatch. We think of the eject button in a cockpit of a fighter jet. I'm out. The escape in view here, however, is not fighter jet ejection. It's finish line. Think of it in those ways. It's the escape in view is the finish line of a grueling race. There is an end, in other words. The escape is not one that aborts the trial immediately, but one that endures through to that finish line. God promises to supply us with the strength to reach the finish line. He will provide the strength to endure to the end when the trial ends or the race is complete. This is not immensely encouraging We know we do not have the strength to stand in our own flesh. We do not have the strength to stand up to Satan's allure. 
but Christ does. And united to him, I know that whatever he ordains is right and is supplied with his strength for me to endure in faith. This I know, and that is encouraging. I'd just like to briefly address certain individuals here this morning. Not speaking to anybody knowingly, but I know people, I know my own heart, I know this world. You have come here today convinced that there is no way you can break free from a pattern of sin in your life. It just can't happen. That sin might be, like the Corinthians, sensual in nature. It might be anger or greed or laziness, self-indulgence or hatred or bitterness or lack of love or the ability to control your tongue. And you just say, there is no hope. I just cannot overcome. There are two things that you need to bring face to face here today. The first is to honestly admit the intensity of your desire for sin and your weakness to overcome it. That you have to face and own. The second thing to bring face to face with that is the promise of God. His word of promise to you in the midst of that battle that you cannot win. God does not promise victory to the spiritually elite. Nor does God point you to mere willpower or self-discipline, as vital as those are to the equation. What it comes down to is whether you will believe God at His Word. It is a battle. It may take a long time, but victory over sin was won by Christ on the cross. He broke the power of sin there. And He supplies that power to His people. This is His Word to us. And this is the start of victory. Counsel is helpful. Discipline is helpful. Going to always be part of the equation. That's not where you start. Where you start is the promise of God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never permit you to go through a temptation that you cannot endure through to the end that I've designed. And time and time and time again, we don't finish. We turn from God to our idolatries, but we must remember that the fight is here at this point. Do I believe the Word of God? So when you encounter temptation, God promises that you can overcome because He has broken the power of sin, because He supplies the strength. So you do not need a miracle. You do not need supernatural ways and means at your disposal. You need the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you need God's promise. This is not over your head or beyond your capacities if you rely in faith on Christ and His Word. If you willfully seek out temptation, 
if you give yourself away to idolatry, that's a different deal. But by the grace of God, we find you, He finds you, the Spirit of God finds you right now today saying, I'm fighting. I don't want the idols of this world. I want Christ. And if He finds you battling, now we're pointed in the direction where He can put a hand behind our back and help us through to the finish line. That's why Paul says with such bravado and direct confrontation, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So thirdly, fidelity. Flee from idolatry. To avoid sin, you, must, you have to run. If you don't run, it will catch you. You must trust God and His Word and run away. So brothers and sisters, the great enemy of our souls is sin. If we're not at war with sin, if we are not resisting seductive powers of idolatry and sensuality and evil speech and the like, then our love for God is weak and our future prospects are concerning. But we can rejoice to know that Christ broke sin's power. He severed those chains in the life of any genuine believer. We can know on the authority of His Word that every trial or temptation that He assigns to us is never calibrated to drown us, but only to build us up in our holy faith. So take heart, believer, and flee idolatry. Paul does not address here in this passage the how-to. He's working to nurture and mold our hearts to say, I want that. I want holiness of life. I want to turn away from sin. I don't want to give myself to the empty idols of this world that suck us dry and throw us out. I want Christ in His way. That's it. The how-to, of course. What to believe. Flee idolatry. But if you want, if you're saying, this is hitting me, I need help, I want to grow, I would point you this afternoon, this week, to Romans chapters 5 through 8. If you want to narrow in on one place, Romans chapters 5 through 8 might be far more helpful to the how to, but here, the want to. That's what's at issue. And that, that want to is demonstrated in part when we come around this table. It is to say, Christ is my Lord. And His blood was shed for my forgiveness. I identify with Moses, but in what greater way, what fulfillment way, I identify here at this table with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And everybody that comes to this table legitimately comes as a sinner. A sinner saved by grace. So here we come to acknowledge what He has done for us. Lord, aid us to that end as we now commune with our Savior and draw 
to a proper fittedness for that communion. Anyone who's separated from Christ, anyone who is not identified with Him, Lord, guide and direct us here in these moments to commune with our risen Savior whose blood pleads for us. In His name we pray.